This is Glenda Taylor. Welcome to the One and All Wisdom Podcast. I used to live in Southern California, where I was very aware of the potential for earthquakes. I knew that earthquakes occur along fault lines, cracks in the Earth's crust, where when pressure builds up, tectonic plates move against each other sometimes without harm when the pressure is safely released, but sometimes when those plates grind against each other too strongly, a fissure opens up that can bring down buildings and roads and trees and anything else along its path. I've been reflecting on that as a metaphor as I was reading recently a very interesting book in which the writer said that Two specific fault lines have run through American history for more than 400 years, and that the pressure building up along those fault lines can put us in danger at any time of a major quake that can be very destructive, bringing down the edifices of our democracy. The first of these fault lines in our history, where two powerful things are pushing against each other, concerns the rights of individuals on the one hand versus the rightful powers of government on the other. Across our country right now, whatever balance we thought we had on this issue is being dramatically strained. Action by police has brought unprecedented numbers of protesters to the streets, most peaceful, some actually anarchical and violent. Furthermore, as the Trump administration challenges the authority of locally elected mayors or governors, commonly accepted notions of legal jurisdiction are further challenged. Urgent questions concerning freedom, equality, and civic responsibility abound. The other fault line that runs through all our history that is shaking things up today is the relationship between church and state. Not for the first time, certain groups are demanding that their religious views should be hardened into civil law. Litmus tests are demanded for judges, one way or the other, who will promise to rule in favor of those religious views. Violent and lethal attacks by extremists against individuals in religious settings, synagogues, mosques, Christian churches, by racists and separatists, these instances of intolerance push against the laws of religious freedom in our country. As I said, these are not new issues. Those fault lines have been with us throughout our history. One would think 400 years would be long enough for us to sort this all out, but not so. So in this fourth in a series of podcasts, I want to offer briefly a backstory that is both instructive and in some ways surprising. This story is about a man who was, arguably, the first person ever to describe individual liberty as we think of it. And I want to tell you some of his dramatic interactions with the governing powers of his time right here in our country. When the first successful English colony in America was planted in Jamestown, Virginia in 1607, 
what we call individual liberty, was unknown. Although England had its Magna Carta, the limited rights it granted were for barons and elite landowners, not ordinary citizens, and everyone, even kings, was under the powerful authority of one religious organization or another. Of course, wars were fought, and many important people, including monarchs, were beheaded or excommunicated or whatever, deciding again and again who was in charge, who could decide what the rules were about religious practices that everyone had to follow. In 1607 in England, it was the king and the Protestant Church of England. As for freedom back then, well, let's just note that individuals of every race and creed were all subject to sudden capture, enslavement, punishment, or death, right out of the blue for no fault of their own, not only because of religious differences either. For example, any healthy young man of any race or religion might be suddenly swept up by a chain gang that needed a few extra hands on a seagoing vessel, and that was that. Once captured, the young man was a slave to that ship captain. Or as was commonly the case, those same sailors who had captured the young man might later themselves be taken captive or enslaved by the crews of ships from another European country, Japan or China, or an Islamic country. It happened often, overlooked if not condoned by all governments. Furthermore, religion, commerce, and government were inextricably woven together more tightly than we can now imagine back in those days. For example, part of the stated purpose of every charter for the colonization of America included the words, quote, Christianizing of the savages, right along with the goal of making money, not only for individuals, but also for the nation, and the nation in turn used the money in one way or another to gain ascendancy over other nations, usually in the name of religion. So in 1607, when that first little successful English colony in Jamestown, Virginia, was founded by nationalistic English adventurers for commercial purposes and to get a Protestant foothold on the continent before Catholic Spain could do so and to Christianize the Indians. It was the Church of England that everyone had to conform to or face extraordinary consequences, no matter what their secret, honest, heartfelt allegiances might be to the Pope or the teachings of John Calvin or Luther or whoever. The indigenous people already here, of course, had no notion of what any of that meant. They would soon learn. When 13 years later, in 1620, the Mayflower arrived on the New England coast at what would be later called Plymouth, the hundred sea-weary folks aboard that little ship, like other protesting or Protestant groups of the time, were disgusted with all of the established churches. To those Mayflower immigrants, the established churches were corrupt and had fallen away from Jesus' teaching. So those who landed in Plymouth wanted to separate themselves from other churches and start afresh. Thus they were called separatists. 
They were therefore not happy to receive some of the other sorts of reformers who came soon after. Those, for example, who established the Massachusetts Bay Colony with its center at Boston, who didn't want to separate from the established church. They merely wanted to purify it. They were Puritans, not separatists. And as one writer has said, the Puritans came with a, quote, divinely ordained arrogance (laughs) and an antipathy toward the separatists and anyone else who disagreed with their religious views. But they arrived in 17 ships carrying more than a thousand passengers, and they came with more money and resources. Within a few decades, Plymouth would be swallowed up by the Massachusetts Bay Colony, although the differences in religious beliefs would remain present under the surface. The folks in Boston had more power, and they used it. Despite the promise that Boston would be a city set upon a hill dedicated to God, obeying God's laws, and flourishing in God's image, they were the ones deciding what God's laws were, and the punishment for nonconformity to their particular view of God's law was severe. The best thing that could happen to nonconformists in New England at the time, if they weren't hanged or burnt alive, or have their houses and all their possessions burned to the ground and they themselves banished out into the wilderness, might be lesser sentences of having their ears cut off, or a hole cut in their tongue, or enduring a brutal public whipping, and so forth. In the two years of 1630 and 31, The Massachusetts Bay Colony alone banished 14% of its population out into the wilderness. If the banished dared return, they were subject to death at the discretion of the magistrates. So, our textbook myths about the pilgrims coming to this country for religious freedom often ignores the facts, the very idea of individual freedom liberty, and religious freedom and equality, these at the time merely meant freedom to conform to the power of the latest dominant group. So that's the setting for our story. It was into this situation in New England that in 1631, a young minister and his wife arrived from England He was a scholarly and devout theologian who recently had held an important position with two different prominent individuals at the English king's court, but at least one of those individuals had been sent to the tower for unorthodox views, and our young minister was in imminent danger of being sent there himself. So he came to the colonies instead. His name was Roger Williams. His story echoes so loudly down to our own time that I felt it important to share bits of it with you in this podcast. A book entitled Roger Williams and the Creation of the American Soul by John M. Barry gives us extraordinary details, and I've obtained permission from the publisher to quote liberally from it here. The leaders of the Massachusetts Bay Colony in Boston knew of Williams already. 
they had two years before enticed him to come to a ministry in New England, saying that he was of good account in England for a godly and zealous preacher, meaning, of course, that they thought he was likely to agree with their views. When he did arrive in New England, they immediately offered him the highest religious post in their colony. But William surprised and offended them by turning it down indelicately, spurning their church as being unseparated from the corruption of the Church of England and being insufficiently committed to the proper worship of God, end quote. The leaders of the church there in Boston who had offered Williams the post would not forget this response. However, the little community of Salem, about 20 miles away, was inclined to separatism, as Williams was, and they invited him to become their preacher, and he agreed. The more powerful leaders in Boston vigorously protested, of course, and they actually threatened one of the Salem church leaders with punishing that member for an offense the Boston group could name against him if they chose, and Salem withdrew its offer to Williams. Williams then moved to Plymouth, where the original first-comers had landed and where he was welcomed. He tried to remain low-key, informally assisting the minister there, and according to Governor William Bradford, Williams' teachings were well-approved. But Williams' ways were unusual. For example, he explored the surrounding territory like an anthropologist, keeping records and journals visiting the natives in their own surroundings, and learning from them. He welcomed the natives into his own home, dealt fairly with them, and eventually wrote a dictionary translating the local native dialect into English, a dictionary that many years later would be the only remnant of that language to survive when the tribe itself was virtually wiped out by English settlers. But here's the rub. After a time, William's contact with the Indians caused him to question the validity of all colonial charters that had simply assumed they could take the land from the natives without purchasing it from them. Williams wrote a lengthy tract that openly condemned the king's charters and actually questioned the right of the colonists to the land they were living on. Needless to say, this, in his separatist religious views, didn't sit well back in Boston. Williams was called several times to appear before the general court to defend his tract, attacking the king and the charter, and to answer for erroneous and dangerous opinions. Under duress, Williams withdrew from the church altogether and retired, he hoped, to have freedom to plant his own garden and explore the trackless wilderness around him, meeting and interacting peacefully with the local natives. But loyal followers of William's teaching began to gather in secret at his home, and so he continued to teach and debate and think and to develop his unusual ideas. John Berry writes in his book, and I quote, Williams challenged both the government and the clergy. They all shared the same faith in God, in worshiping God, all-seeing God in every facet of life, and all-seeing man's purpose is advancing the kingdom of God, but 
the Massachusetts Bay leaders, both lay and clergy, firmly believed that the state must enforce all of God's law. The state must enforce all of God's law. And that the state was there to prevent error in religion. End quote. Williams recognized that putting the state to that service required humans to interpret God's law. Williams believed that humans, being imperfect, would inevitably err in applying God's law. So he preached that the state should concern itself only with non-religious things. He believed in the state's authority over civil and criminal behavior. He opposed the state's exercise of authority and involvement in religion. When it came to the church's authority, Williams took a stand unique at the time by saying that the church should not force any persons to follow any particular religion or even to pay tithes to the church, insisting no one should be bound to maintain a worship against his own consent. Further, Williams was the first to insist that the state should not use tax money to pay ministers. The mixing of church and state, he said, could at best lead only to hypocrisy, since he believed that forced worship, as he said, stinks in God's nostrils. So for the first time in modern history, perhaps the first time ever, we find a doctrine of separation of church and state. The authorities in Massachusetts Bay, however, disagreed. Now again, quoting from Barry's excellent book, I quote, Williams' views contradicted both the theory of the divine right of kings and the Puritan belief that they were carrying out God's plan, that they were building a city of God with a state committed to Christian ideals, demanding conformity, and imposing community standards upon individuals. They believed that Williams had become dangerous, that his views could infect the entire colony and cause its descent into sin. To prevent this, the general court of Massachusetts Bay Colony, decided on October 6, 1635, to banish Williams, ordering him to depart from its jurisdiction within six weeks. If he returned, the court had full discretion to impose upon him a range of punishments, from imprisonment to flogging, branding, the cutting off of his ears, the cutting out of his tongue, and execution. Continuing to quote, the authorities had already extended one mercy. Williams was ill, and winter was falling upon New England. So they suspended enforcement of the banishment order until spring. In return, Williams was to remain silent. He did remain silent publicly, making no statements and preaching no sermons in the church he had once served. His most passionate supporters, however, had continued to come to his home, there, only in his own home, among his close comrades and supporters, he spoke freely. Word of this reached Boston. In January 1636, without further admonition or warning, the authorities sent perseverance, rough men, soldiers who had bloodied their swords in the brutal wars of Europe, to arrest him and place him on board a ship about to return to England.
Such an act went well beyond the banishment order. In England, Williams could not be safe. The best he could expect in England was a jail cell, nor would it be the comfortable rooms in the tower where his mentor had languished. Williams did not have the protection of rank. He might well face worse than simple prison. These were perilous and bloody times. The then-deputy governor, Winthrop, knew of the plan to return Williams to England, and he knew also Williams' likely fate there. He both liked Williams personally and considered him a good and still godly man who had simply fallen into error. Secretly, he sent Williams a warning that men were coming to arrest him and place him on board that ship. Williams acted upon the warning immediately. His wife and child would remain in Salem. The Bay had issued no sanctions against them. They would be safe until he could find refuge and send for them. Continuing to quote here, Williams dressed against the winter, stuffing his clothes with the dried corn paste, which Indians lived on for weeks at a time. With no time for sentimental goodbyes to friends, he fled his home. Williams would never see it again. In a moment he passed without the bounds of the village. The sea was close about him, but indications are he fled by land, swallowed by forest within a few steps. He would have a kind of welcome in the forest. No other Englishman knew the Indian trails as did he, and no other Englishman was as fluent in Indian tongues as he. But if he found a welcome in the forest, he would find no comfort in it. He fled in a blizzard. The snow fell softly, but also thickly, until it rose above his knees. Each step became arduous, exhausting, and decades later he wrote of the weariness that overcame him then. He was not without company, however. Wolves haunted the forest, and those usually called savages, savage Indians, haunted the forest too. Yet it was these savages, these Indians, who gave William shelter through all that winter. Until the end of his days, the memory was ever in his consciousness that those who were called savages had saved his life, while his civilized fellow English, his one-time close colleagues, had banished him. End quote. So, Williams was sheltered by the Indians until, in the spring, he was granted by the natives a piece of land on Narragansett Bay. He sent word through the natives back to his family. He would clear land, plant crops, and build a house, send for his wife and child. Others of his followers soon heard of this, of course, and before long, ten or twelve men from Salem came and asked to join him. Williams agreed, and they all set to work, clearing and planting. Soon enough, however, the authorities in Massachusetts Bay heard of it and demanded that Williams move across the bay beyond the bounds of their legally chartered territory and into the location of a different and notoriously hostile native tribe. Williams, however, knew those natives, too. He had in previous years visited them, exchanged gifts, even advised them in conflicts with the English. At one time later, Williams sat in a war council, the only white among thousands of Indians, 
and convince the Narragansett not to join in a war against the rest of New England. So when Williams was ordered to move again to leave his cleared land and his already growing crops, he climbed into a canoe and rowed across the bay and, with the permission of the local chief, chose a new site for his settlement. He and the chief decided on clear boundaries that they both would abide by thereafter. Williams wanted his new settlement, which with the land around it would eventually become Rhode Island, to be a haven for those that he said were distressed of conscience. (laughs) And it soon attracted a collection of dissenters and otherwise-minded individuals. From the beginning there, in Williams' little settlement, a majority vote of the heads of households formed the government. But as the settlement grew, a written compact was drawn up by Williams that everyone agreed to and signed. And it's striking that in that compact between Williams and the other settlers, meant to be a civil document, no mention of God is present. As Barry writes in his book, quote, All comparable founding documents, whether English, Spanish, Portuguese, or French, spoke explicitly of God's purpose. Williams was deeply religious, and all the rest of Williams' letters and documents make frequent reference to God. This makes it all the more striking that he would draw up purposefully a governing compact that did not bring God into the laws and regulations of the state. End quote. Williams' experiences had made him conscious of both the power of the state and of the church, and of either one's willingness to use that power. So he sought to separate church and state in their jurisdictions. He insisted that government received its power from and should be controlled by the vote of its citizens. And in his settlement, there would be no religious test for voting. As obvious a concept as that seems today, it was revolutionary when he articulated it. What he said and wrote would have enormous influence on his contemporaries John Milton and John Locke, with whom he was in correspondence. Williams wrote, I say liberty and equality. In the words written in that founding document, the government was, Williams said, and I quote, democratical, that is to say, a government held by the free and voluntary consent of all are the greater part of the free inhabitants, meaning majority rule. Thus, Williams founded the first place in modern history where citizenship and religion were separate and with a state government guaranteeing religious liberty. Even Jews and Quakers, who were persecuted in most of the rest of the country, in Rhode Island were safe. John Berry writes, quote, Williams sought no law to constrain them, much less did he seek to have them killed. Instead, he debated them. <laughs> End quote. Even England's 
King Charles II, in later reaffirming Rhode Island's charter, simply copied William's language, quote, No person within the said colony at any time hereafter shall be in any wise molested, punished, disquieted, or called in question for any differences in opinion in matters of religion who do not actually disturb the civil peace of our said colony. As time passed, Rhode Island and Roger Williams thrived unevenly. As we all know, the road to freedom and equality is always uneven, with many ups and downs, many conflicts and compromises. Williams, for example, wanted a law to prohibit slavery, but eventually Rhode Island would make slavery legal. Williams continued to advocate for the Narragansett Indians, keeping the peace between them and the colony of Rhode Island for nearly 40 years by his constant mediation and negotiation. He twice surrendered himself as a hostage to the Native Americans to guarantee the safe return of a native chief from a summons to an English court. But eventually war came, and for Williams, by then in his 70s, that war proved to be one of the bitterest events in his life, as it included the burning of William's own house and of the whole town of Providence, and eventually it led to the almost complete annihilation of the whole Narragansett tribe. But William's dictionary of their language survived, as did many of the other documents that Williams wrote that are so important to our current understanding of freedom and liberty. Roger Williams' place in our history remains a critically important one, even today, especially today, as we struggle to redefine ourselves and our views in relation to our laws and their enforcement. Roger Williams' story, his similar struggles in a time when so many things we take for granted did not even exist. All of this is more than informative. 150 years before Thomas Jefferson, Williams called for, and I quote, a wall of separation between church and state. His radical idea that the state derives its authority from and remains subject to its citizens and that the state is not to interfere with our freedom to speak and write and protest is at the core of much of the strong protest we see in our streets today. And the principle of majority rule and of the protection of the right to vote are, of course, also now again in question. As I said at the beginning of this podcast, two fault lines run throughout American history, the balance between the rights of the individual and the jurisdiction of the state, and also the separation of church and state. The ways in which those two conflicting principles have pushed against each other has been always a part of our living history, and they are a part of us, a part of our living history, as we carry that history within us and move it forward in one way or another. We should not forget either how fragile liberty is, 
how easily good and godly people can do terrible things in the name of beliefs they think are righteous. There is the possibility that there are those among us and that there is within us, each of us, our own inner villagers, that can be like those righteous villagers and officials in Massachusetts Bay that so vehemently disagreed with Roger Williams that they would banish him in the cold of winter to a certain death, they thought, or even favor his demise. We must guard always against those energies and attitudes that still exist among us and sadly are too often on display today. No, we shouldn't forget Roger Williams or any of the other heroic individuals who sacrificed and endured so much for our freedom and our liberty. We must courageously take up our own responsibilities and maintain those freedoms we have inherited by voting and by protecting the right to vote and the other freedoms Roger Williams in Rhode Island advance. When, in a few weeks, we get to exercise that amazing privilege to vote, may we remember that it is a privilege dearly won and that with our vote, we must concern ourselves for the freedoms, not only of ourselves, but also for others, for Native peoples, for immigrants to this country of whatever persuasion, for the safety and equality of all various races and genders and descriptions. And like Roger Williams, who roamed the wilderness of the New England countryside, learning about and caring for the earth itself, let us be sure that our vote counts for the welfare of nature and climate and environment. And let our votes always be against tyranny of any kind. As a closing comment here in this podcast, I would just add that in 1776, when Thomas Jefferson wrote the Declaration of Independence, stating so many of the principles Williams had alone stood for, and when Jefferson called for the then existing colonies to declare their independence from England, Rhode Island was the first to do so on May the 4th, 1776, two months before the rest of the colonies. Roger Williams' teachings had survived and informed the decisions of Rhode Island citizens. May they do the same for us today. This is Glenda Taylor. Join me again for the next podcast, likely to be on a completely different subject, and join me on the website, One and All Wisdom. Dot com.